This is David Tarkington. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For more information about our church, First Baptist Church of Orange Park, and our network, the First Family Network, go to firstfam.org. You can check out my site at davidtarkington.com. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, Paul is writing to the Philippian church, and he says this, I thank God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you are all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is a a very comforting part of a letter written by Paul the Apostle to a church in Philippi that he had uh, friendships with the members and he was key in the leadership and the development of this church. He writes this letter, a letter of of, um, instruction, a letter of encouragement, a letter, if you look at a theme for the entire book of Philippians, or the entire letter to the Philippian church, that theme would be joy, and joy being a choice. We'll talk more about that today. It's pretty amazing as you read this, what happens here is, is you see in, in this, really this introduction, this, complete, this, this completion of the introduction that we read last week, you see a view of the world that is countercultural. You see a view that is the different perspective than many people would view this and, and see this. I use the phrase worldview often, and this is a worldview passage, as are all of them. For as you read through this, you're going to see things as a maturing Christian that those who are not would not understand. You're going to see things that, that as a Christian who is growing in your faith, you would say, yes, I affirm that, I understand that. Where those that maybe, uh, maybe they're stuck in a rut, maybe you're kind of struggling in your walk, you're going to go, I'm not quite sure I understand what he means, this doesn't make any sense here. But I believe it does make a lot of sense, and hopefully we can help you get the right worldview as we work through this, this letter. The joy that Paul speaks of is in this section is, is more than just a, a giddiness or a, or a happiness, though that is a definition of it, guess, of joy as well. There is a contentedness here that is odd for the world to view in this perspective. For Paul is, is writing this in a very difficult place. To look at this from a, a, a cultural worldview would be to, to say, well, that's, that's naive to believe that's even a possibility. Or, or maybe that's just too, too um, I use this phrase, some of you may get it, it's too Pollyanna, right? It's too, it's too perfect. It's too saccharine sweet. It doesn't all work that way. And, and before we discount it, and before your gift of cynicism or my gift of cynicism rises too high, I want us to make sure we, we get a perspective of what's really going on here. Because what we're seeing here is viewed as ludicrous and, and what we understand, ludicrous from the world's view of what we understand going on in Paul's life. And it really is about perspective. And when I say this is a letter written by Paul, please understand what I, it, it is in our Bible. It, it is in the canon. It is, it is not just a letter written by a man to a church 2,000 years ago. Yes, it is a letter written by Paul or, or dictated by Paul to his associate to sent to an actual church in a city of Philippi. But it's more than that. This is the Holy Inspired Word of God, Holy Spirit inspired Word of God. This is God writing this through Paul to a people. And not only 2,000 years ago, but because of the inspiration and because of what we believe about the infallibility and the immutability of God's Word, this is God's Word to us today. 
Not to a a group of dead people that lived on the other side of the planet 2,000 years ago only. But it's God's living Word to us and we are to take this to heart. Back in the second century, there was a bishop named Cyprian. Now, to, to quote what Cyprian has to say he, is, is a little unique for me. He, we would not necessarily agree with everything he held to be true, but nevertheless, as a follower of God, he wrote some things and he said this statement that is very true. He lived in Tunisia at, at, during that time, second century, and he wrote a letter to a friend named Donatus. And in this letter to Donatus, we see revealed a perspective on the world that that Christians are, ought to have. We see a worldview reve- revealed in this letter. Let me, let me read this to you. This is to Donatus from Cyprian. He says, This seems a cheerful world, Donatus, when I view it from this fair garden under the shadow of these vines. But if I climbed some great mountain and looked out over the wide lands, you know very well what I would see. I would see thieves on the high road, pirates on the seas, In the amphitheaters, men would be murdered to please the applauding crowds. And you have the gladiatorial games that come to mind. Under all roofs, misery and selfishness. It is a really bad world, Donatus. An incredibly bad world. Yet in the midst of it, I have found a quiet and holy people. They have discovered a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of this sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. These people, Donatus, are the Christians, and I am one of them. See, I bet you didn't know that in the second century the world was really bad. Aren't you glad we got over that? There's not a lot that's changed. Donatus is getting this letter from his friend Cyprian the bishop, and he says the the world is bad. Really, really bad. We don't have to be reminded of that. We know that. But I find it interesting. He says, but there's a small group of people in this world that see things differently than everybody else sees them. That small group of people are called Christians, and I'm one of them. And as I look around the crowd today, there's a small group of people in Orange Park that are sitting in this room today, not just here, other churches as well, but this group is the one we're speaking of and speaking to today. And out of this group, we ought to have a different perspective on what's going on in the world than everybody else in the world. This group ought to have an understanding of the worldview that is expected of the Christian life because we are Christians. At least most of us would be. Perhaps we need to be like Cyprian in that and see things in a way that others don't. Paul, Paul as I read this letter, I, I'm, we're reminded of, of, of where Paul was when he wrote the letter to the church in Philippi. Paul was in prison. Now, writing in prison a letter that's about joy is interesting in and of itself. That's one of the reasons people would say, well, this is kind of ludicrous. This doesn't make any sense. He's out of his mind. But Paul is in a prison, and there's been debate by historians and theologians throughout the centuries over which, where he was when he wrote this. It's, it's affirmed that he was in prison as he writes this, but there, there are different views on this. You see, Paul was a frequent flyer. He had accumulated a number of hotel points from various prisons around the region. He, was a, he, had, he had multiple stays. And, and, and I tend to, you know, and, I, and if I'm wrong in this, then okay, I'm wrong in this, but I tend to hold to what we consider the traditional view that this prison he's writing from is the prison in Rome. So he's writing from Rome, and if I find out he's not, it, does, it, it doesn't change his story. He's still in prison. That's not exactly the Ritz. But he's writing in Rome. He's in prison. He's chained to a guard. He's either writing it or having this letter penned in his name by an associate. Now think about this. If it's in Rome, what is Rome? Rome is the 
the large uh, metropolis of the world. It is um, in the Roman Empire. If you were to merge New York City, Washington, D.C., and Hollywood, that's Rome. It's the entertainment capital of the world. It's the financial capital of the world. It's the political capital of the world. And it's all happening in the Roman Empire right there in Rome. And Paul is there in Rome. He's visiting in Rome. <laughs> he has a nice little stay, but he's in prison. And when you think about Rome, what, what, what would we know about this city? Well, this city of Rome at the time was, was uh, focused on um, providing every available earthly pleasure they could to its residents and its visitors. Long before Vegas said what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, Rome had coined the term, I believe. That's what was going on in this city. The entertainment in Rome was extreme. The nightlife was adult-oriented, and they didn't card anybody at any door, so they didn't care. They just want to make sure everybody gets to do whatever they want to do because they want it to be fun and pleasing. The sports stadiums were filled it was a city banking on the pleasure of its people. And here's what's interesting. A city centered on making sure the people in the city were pleasured, were happy, were having a good time. The happiest person in the city right then, the one with the joy beyond understanding, the happiest, if you want to use that term, is a man chained to a guard in a prison in the city. That is not who you would have chosen to be happiest in the city at that moment. But that's who it is. In this section of the letter, Paul first mentions joy. And yet, the, the, as you read throughout the letter of the church to the church at Philippi, you see joy, whether it's written out specifically or it's a theme throughout the book, it is there. That's what the letter really focuses upon. The fact that joy, contentedness, a peace, a harmony within ourselves, knowing who we are in Christ, that joy is available and it is an expectation for the church. It is very clear as Paul writes this, as the Holy Spirit tells us, that the church is expected to be known as a church that is joyful. And that also tells us that joy is a command of choice. You get to choose to be joyful. It is, joy just doesn't happen. It's a choice. It's intentional. So if you're looking for a theme in Philippians, it's this, choose joy all throughout the book. Now, it's while I was in fourth grade in, uh, in Alabama. I keep going back to my Alabama roots. That makes Bill very happy here. So fourth grade in Alabama, my teacher, my Sunday school teacher, I, I, you know, I, from my perspective, she was a godly woman. I don't know uh, much about her other than that she was faithful. She was in Sunday school before I showed up. That's always a good thing if you're teaching kids, just so you know, little reminder. Um, I was welcomed and uh, flannel graph was a lot of fun back then. So we had that going on for us, right? The little pictures on the flannel wall. But in one of her lessons, I don't remember a lot of what she taught. I remember a few very specific ones, and this was one. <clears throat> I'm nine years old. I don't remember a whole lot about being nine years old. Well, I do, but not things that anyone would care about. But I do remember this. And she was trying to teach us boys and girls in that class a template for prayer. She was trying to help us understand how to pray. And as a nine-year-old, I wanted to pray. Uh, I was a new Christian, so it's all brand new to me. Uh, I'd grown up in the church. I'd had all the church words embedded in my brain, so they all made sense to me. I was, I was, I was very, very Baptist, all right? 
I mean, I'm RA Baptist, Royal Ambassador Baptist, Training Union Baptist, Sunday School Baptist, every church we went, it all looked alike. I knew how to do Baptist. But prayer was not easy. It's still not necessarily easy. She gave us this template. She said, when you pray, you need to remember, and this is, you've heard this, this is nothing new, you need to remember the word joy. And I remember Ms. Brown telling me that, joy. And she said, David, can you spell it? And I said, yeah, I can spell joy. I'm nine years old. I can handle three letters. So I can spell joy. And she said, when you pray, just remember joy. And I'm like, okay. She goes, just remember, the J in joy stands for Jesus. So start with Jesus. Thank Jesus for all he does. Thank God for who he is. Thank Jesus for dying on the cross. Just focus on Jesus. Spend some time praying to Jesus about God and just thanking him. It's okay. Then she said letter O stands for others. So now in your prayer, pray for the needs of other people, your friends, your family members, your classmates, as we did today for the Lavanderoses and others. And then she said, and Y stands for you. So at the end of your prayer, when the time is up and you're about to amen it, then tell God what you want him to do for you or ask God what you want him to do for you, not tell him. But pray for you, your needs. Now, I get it. That sounds kind of cheesy and kind of corny. But listen, as a nine-year-old boy with a nine-year-old faith that was only a, really a Christian faith, only about a year old at that time at the most, I'm trying to learn these things that should seem obvious to others. And maybe it's super obvious to you. But that little joy acrostic has somehow been burned in my brain ever since then. And it's not just a model of how to pray, but it really is a worldview lens. It really is. I don't know that she really understood that. because Let me just tell you this. Without that little J-O-Y running through my head when I'm praying in my private prayer time, I tend to pray Y-O-J. Dear God, here's what I want you to do for me. And, and, you know, and if you're not careful, you're going to treat God like a guy in a red suit at Christmas that you're giving him a list of what you want. And if you're not careful, you're going to run out of time and you're going to forget to pray for others and you'll definitely just say, oh, in Jesus' name. That's not enough for the J, by the way. That's good. But, you know, it, it changes your focus. If your prayer begins with God, you're reminded that it always does. And then it always ends with you. See, see, see that, that was just a little corny, little cheesy thing, but I think it's really true. And I doubt that, I doubt that my, my teacher really knew she was giving me a worldview lesson. I think she just thought she'd found a little trick to help kids learn how to pray. And maybe she had issues with prayer as well, just like a lot of adult Christians do. Hey, by the way, you don't have, even if you're older than nine, that little thing still works. You can write it down if you want to. It works. It's a great model but it's more than a prayer template. See, the, the, Jesus gave us one called the model prayer. That's really the big one, our Father who art in heaven. This is just a simplified version of it. But the J-O-Y template is not just a how to pray thing. It's a biblical worldview lens. See, everybody looks at the world through a set of lenses. Everybody does. And your lenses that you view things through are based on your culture, your heritage, and, and if you're not a Christian, it's based on... The humanist worldview, you can't get away from that. It's based on a self-centered worldview. But what Christians do, when we become Christians, we are given an opportunity, we're given a new set of lenses. And that new set of lenses allows us to see things in ways that we wouldn't see otherwise. But the challenge, here's the, here's the deal. It's really easy to put them down and forget where you laid them. And to start looking at the world the way everybody else does. And to wonder why you feel miserable and why you don't have joy in your heart and joy in your life. 
Now, when I think about this little acrostic, I doubt that Paul ever used the J-O-Y acrostic in his prayer. You know why? He didn't speak English. That's why. That's a revelation to some of you. I know. He didn't even speak King James English. I know that really blows you away, but he didn't. So he didn't use J-O-Y. But as you read his writings, you begin to realize that his focus on the Lord and his love for others really is modeled in that. That's really the gospel in a, in a nutshell, I think, at some level, in teaching us how to see things. Now we know, you likely know, that Paul wrote numerous letters to others throughout the, the region. We have many of those in the New Testament. We have a letter to Ephesus, a letter to Galatia. We have letters to the Thessalonians. We have letters to Timothy. So you have these letters that he had written. And they're specific letters written to specific churches, specific individuals. And at many times, he deals with very specific sins and struggles that are occurring within that fellowship. These are not easy letters, many of these. He calls people out for the sin that the church sometimes is allowing to be left unchecked. He says, hey, you know what? Here's what you ought to do, church. Uh, kick them out and uh, bring them back in repentance. I mean, there's a whole thing on discipline. There's a whole thing on how to love. There's a whole thing on how to live righteously. It's all throughout the letters, but it's all, it's all about God using Paul to purify and keep his church holy. But it's really not about Paul. It's about God. It's about Christ. Paul get, begins many of his letters in very similar fashion. You'll notice that. There is a there's a writing style. There, there's a way he begins his letters. But it is also very clear as you read these numerous letters that Paul was not just reciting a memorized prayer when he got to the thankfulness and the prayer for the people. His love for the churches and the individuals in the church and the people that he knew was not a generic emotion or a generic feeling. His love was intentionally a choice. Now, now let me this, this, this is a worldview perspective that really messes with folks too because there is a perspective in the world that believes that love is just something that happens, that love is a feeling, that love is something you can fall into and you can fall out of. There is the phileo love, the brotherly love. You can love somebody and then not love them because you just I don't feel it anymore. There are couples that are married that fall out of love. and I, I mean, I've counseled people. I had a guy, I just don't love her anymore. And I'm like, yeah, that's bogus. What you're telling me is you chose not to anymore. See, love is always a choice. It's never just a warm fuzzy and a sweaty palm and a feeling. Love is always a choice. We did a wedding yesterday for two of our church members here, two young people. They were married. It was a, a beautiful wedding ceremony. And uh, they, they walked, as I said, they walked down the aisles individually. They walked back down the aisle as one. It was an amazing moment, a picture of of, uh, of, of the beauty of, of, of relationship, of the man and the woman coming together and, and, and under God. And yet, I don't know if you knew this, this might be revelatory for many of you, that um, there are days after the wedding it's not as fun as the day of the wedding. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> there are days, months, years later, where amazingly the people that were in the wedding photos don't look like that anymore. What are you laughing at? My wife, you know. Just if I had that tux on, it would come to about right here on me, right? So. We change. We grow. We mature. A lifelong love in a marriage relationship is a, is a choice. It, it always is. A life... 
a love relationship with your church is a choice. A love relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ is a choice. And that's revolutionary for some that like love to be just some kind of feeling that you fall into that, that, that can be marketed as such. I, I think, and it, it's really not a shot, it really isn't, but I think we have dumbed down the concept of love, even romantic love, to be some kind of cheesy feel-good movie that everything works out in the end, and when that doesn't happen in real life, we go, well, I guess I wasn't really in love. Nobody's life is like that kind of movie. That's why those movies sell. Because they're like fairy tales. Never mind, let's get on with this. As we think of this man in prison dictating to his associate, all the while chained to a guard, the question that comes to my mind, maybe not yours, but mine, is this. How in the world can somebody who is going through such difficulty in such a miserable place, who is being hurt for what I would consider to be doing the right thing? I mean, he's there because he's a Christian in a culture that that sees Christianity as a threat to the worship of Caesar. So he's in prison because of his faith. How can a guy who did the right thing and the people aren't celebrating it, they arrest him instead, how can that guy not grow cynical and frustrated with all of this? And how can that guy avoid cynicism, avoid frustration, and at that same moment have the insight and the ability to have a letter written that says, I am so joyful and thankful for who you are, church, and how good and, God, and gracious our God is. How? I mean, and, and you don't have to, to, to confess to this, but I'm just wondering if there's anybody that ever has a prayer, thank you God for this terrible day. Oh, dear Lord, thank you so much for the difficulty we're going through. Thank you, Lord, when every single thing I do for what I believe to be the right reasons ends up hurting other people's feelings. Thank you for that, God. Thank you, God, that so many people that I care for misunderstand me. Thank you, God, that I'm misunderstood. Thank you, God, that it, I, I never seem to be able to do enough for others. Thank you, Lord, that I don't seem to be making a difference. Thank, isn't that wonderful? Wouldn't you love, isn't that your prayer time? Maybe you can thank God for moments like that. I know when we have difficult moments, everybody has difficulties in life, right? Everybody has stressors. I mean, it's these storms of life we speak of. And, and it's different to find yourself at this point on your timeline, looking back down that timeline and going, yeah, those years over here, the dark ages of my life, they were hard, they were challenging, they were painful, they hurt deeply, I have deep wounds, but God saw me through it, and even though these were hard, look at where I am now, and I can look back and go, I wouldn't want to do it again, but I thank God for what He did through it. That's good, that's important, that's a great perspective, that's, that's right. But how much more difficult is it in the midst of that, while you're here on the timeline going, God, I get it. Today stinks. It's terrible. Thank you. Because in my head I'm going, I know I'm going to be okay eventually, but I just want to know, am I going to be okay this side of heaven or do I have to get to heaven first? Let me just call it for what it really is. It's one thing to say, we love the Lord, praise God. It's another thing to say, thank you God for how good and gracious you are while I'm sitting in an ICU next to my four-year-old daughter when she's hooked up to all this machinery been talking with Pastor Drace about this. 
I'm, I'm, you know, what do you feel like? Is there, oh, I just wish there was something we can do. How, is that not the worst thing a Christian could ever say? It's almost like we forgot prayer works. It's almost like we use prayer as some last resort. It's almost like when we've done everything we can do, we'll go to God. Now, I'm not saying that Grace and Jenny are sitting there going, we ought to be really happy and giddy right now. We're sitting here in the hospital. No. There's grief, there's sadness, there's pain, there's worry, there's frustration. But there's also, and they have this, and sometimes Grace has to remind Jenny, and sometimes Jenny has to remind Grace, if you've ever been in that story, that God's grace is sufficient, and He's still here. And He loves our daughter more than we do. Go figure. That's just today's story. You have your own. Some of you are in very dark places even right now. And you're going, I just can't pray that. I just can't thank God. Because you're human. But I also believe that in this, in this passage, we are giving insight into when we can't, we're giving insight into how we can. Maybe you're like Paul. Maybe you have the, the capacity to say, in prison chained up to this guy and I doubt if I'm going to make it out alive. Maybe you're that person. I don't know. But I do know this. That the joy of the Lord is not a hidden treasure we have to go find with some secret pirate map. And the joy of the Lord is not some formula that if you pray this, pray that, read that verse and do this, you'll be happy on Thursday. It doesn't work that way. I don't even think it's some low-hanging fruit that you just have to claim it and name it and have more faith. I think that sounds a little too prosperity gospel for me. I do believe, though, that God's Word and God's Holy Spirit, His, He, the Holy Spirit, reveals to us that joy is not only available but accessible. And that it has to be on our part intentional. Because I think it's a worldview perspective. I think it's how we see the world. I think when you start seeing things the way God sees things, when you keep the right glasses on and the lenses, the biblical lenses that you're supposed to be wearing, you begin to see things and you can have that capacity to say, even in the midst of difficulty, O oh Lord, I will claim joy in You. Now, now here's three things quickly. Three things that I... Uh, I think there's joy in the journey. And the journey of faith, let me just say this, the journey of faith, the journey of the Christian faith began before you decided to join it. No one decides to say yes to Jesus apart from God drawing them to Himself. No one says, I think I'll become a Christian today. That never crosses an individual's mind without God putting that and drawing that position to say, you need me. God initiates all that. God initiates all evangelism, whatever you, however you want to define this. God is the initiator, and the journey is... A, let me tell you what the Christian life is. The Christian life is more than repeating a prayer and spending the rest of your life going to Sunday school. The Christian life is more than loading a bus to go to the Smokies to see the leaves change. The Christian life is more than getting a bunch of teenagers together and taking them to youth camp. It's more than doing projects at the soup kitchen. It's more than going to choir concerts or being in a choir concert or doing vacation Bible school or buying matching t-shirts and going to some far off mission trip that looks good on Instagram. It's more than that. Those things in and of themselves are not necessarily wrong 
wrong and you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You don't have to get rid of any of those things. But if that's all your Christian journey is, you have a weak journey. Because the Christian journey is much more than that, that those, those fluffy things I just mentioned that's like icing on the cake. There is so much more to the journey of faith. And I pray you're living it because here's what I know to be true. That the journey of faith began before you said yes to Him. And it begins with the calling from God, an invitation into a life that matters, an invitation by God into a life that declares sin is real, that Freedom and salvation is offered and redemption is available through Jesus Christ. And I am reminded as I read Scripture, as I see men like Abraham, who was on an adventure story. Abraham called by God before he knew what was going to happen. Moses, who is chosen by God and leads people out of slavery. Joshua, picked by God on a journey of adventure to lead the people into the promised land. David's entire life from shepherd to king. Jesus going to the disciples and saying, you have a good job. Leave your job, your mundane job, and follow me because I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And then Paul. Paul. What a great godly model that is. And I see a couple of more names that are on this list of adventure. And let me just go ahead and declare. Let me, let, let me, let me just say this because I'm going to be speaking at a men's weekend in a couple of weeks and I'm going to make sure all the guys get this too and it may be sounding like I'm backtracking on previous messages and if so, so be it. But the Christian adventuresome life is not equated to eating raw meat, going out in the woods and zip lining. That's not the adventure we're talking about. The adventure of the Christian life is not some man-made construct that gets everybody going, woo-hoo-hoo, and it's a big hoot and holler pep rally. The adventure of the Christian life is adventuresome because you as a Christian live on a planet that hates God. Just to survive it, it's an adventure. If the world is not attacking your faith, your faith must be pretty invisible. And you must be wearing the wrong lenses. Because if no one can tell, if, you know, if the world starts celebrating First Baptist Church, we've already messed up. Because what they did to Jesus is what they do to us. We need to remember that. That doesn't necessarily go well on the marketing platform, right? But hasn't that been the marketing strategy forever? Come to Jesus and carry your cross and live for Him. Well, there's two more names on the list of adventure people, and I think the two names are you and me. Because our life is an adventure of faith if we've stepped into that. And you may not have a book written about your earthly journey, but let me promise you, your earthly journey with God will get you in the book that matters. When you say yes to Him now, when you respond to His drawing and His calling, the Bible says He writes your name in the Lamb's Book of Life with eternal ink. It's a journey that's amazing. It's not promised to be easy or even necessarily fun by our standards, but it is always guaranteed to be worth it. So there's joy in the journey. There's joy in the incomplete. Let me ask you this. In, in the incomplete, that's the word. There's joy in the incomplete. Let me just clarify that I fully believe Christ is the one who completes us. We are made complete in Christ. We are made complete and whole in Him. I also understand that while I'm still on the planet, He's not through with me. And there is a sanctification process going on. He is working on me. Let me ask you this. Has anybody ever complimented you and you said, oh, well, thank you very much. They walked away and then you wasn't sure if it was a compliment? Was that really a compliment or was that a shot? 
I mean, someone can say, oh, wow, that cologne, that's, you smell so good today. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. They walk away, and then you're thinking, did they say I stink every other day? Is that what that means? Yeah, probably. I mean, I don't know. There is a cynicism that says a compliment, is that really a compliment or a shot? So here's what Paul says. If you're not careful, you'll misread it. Paul says, I am sure of this thing, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And you hear that, and you go, well, thank you, Paul. God's not done. But then you sit back, and if you're not careful, you'll go, oh, Really? You mean I'm not done? There's, there's, not, there's more to do? And the answer is no, you're not done. But this is not a shot. Let me just tell you. Here's what I see. I see Paul as, uh, before Paul became a Christian, he was the Christian killer, right? And everything he did to, ke- to kill Christians, arrest Christians, get rid of Christians, was done because he believed it was what God wanted him to do. He was a Christian. He was a, uh, he was a terrorist at that point. That's what he was doing. Because he was working to get Christians off the map and to get them done and get the churches done, close them down and kill them. He's there when Stephen is martyred and you just see that story play out. Paul's the guy who's the cockiest guy on the team. Paul's the guy that would always admit to be the smartest guy in the room. Paul is the guy who is, I'm doing this right. And Jesus, in his interaction with Paul and his man, he dropped him down a few notches and said, you don't even, you think you're the smartest guy. You think you've arrived but you don't even know me. Why are you persecuting me, Paul? And when Paul's life is transformed right there and he becomes the greatest missionary, at least in the early church's history, we see that take place. He becomes an apostle and he's called to that role. We see the Paul that used to be gone. He's a new creature in Christ. He says this to this church. I am sure of this. I am, how can Paul be so sure? Because Paul has a mirror and Paul looks at it and he looks at himself and he goes, I thought I was there and I was nowhere near. I am sure that what God is doing in me, he is doing in you. He's not done with me. How do I know God's not done with me? Because I'm still here. And how do I know he's not done with you? Because you're still here. And God has much for you and he has much in store. And I am sure of this, Paul says, that God, the one who began a good work, he's going to finish that work. There is joy in understanding I am not quite complete yet. That I am a work in progress. That I am made complete in Christ and that will be fulfilled fully when I am fully sanctified and brought home to the Lord. But right now, I am thankful that, that Christ is my completer. And yet, while I'm living here on this planet, that Christ is sanctifying me. He is making me complete. He is working in me. He is working in you for the glory of the Father and for the good of the church and for the good of others. And the good news is you're not done. There is no, nowhere in Scripture you're allowed to retire. Oh, you can retire from your job and get a watch. That's fine. But you're not allowed to retire from your faith. To do so is sin. To do so is sin. To get to the point in your faith where you think it's someone else's turn, I paid my dues, you best repent of that today, my friend. Because God is not pleased with that response. You say, well, I'm an old person. God's older. And he didn't quit. Yeah, but you know, I just can't do what I used to do. I don't think God's saying do what you used to do. I think God's saying do what you got to do. And do what you can do for him. There's also joy in the gospel. Paul reminds us as the church that we are on a mission. He says in verse 5, and I think again in verse 7, he speaks of the confirmation of the gospel in them. The gospel is the good news of life for all who surrender in Christ. The word gospel means good news, but it is sometimes as if Christians have forgotten that's the meaning of the word. And how is that the case? If we forget that the news is good, no wonder we don't have joy. 
It should lead us to peace beyond our understanding. Defending the good news should be the, the natural reaction for a Christian knowing that Jesus is the only way, truth, and life. Confirming the Gospel. Paul says, just look at me. I'm rescued. I didn't deserve it. Just like you and I are rescued, we don't deserve it. The question to be asked is, do you have joy in your life? Are you at peace? Are you content? Or are you in turmoil? Is your inside upside down because of fear, frustration, hopelessness, and every other word you can think of that is not affirmed as a Christian, a Christ follower, as a descriptor? You know, it's like this. When you become a Christian, He gives you biblical lenses to see things through a biblical worldview. And as you get older, those lenses get clearer and clearer because you read more and more. I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you. Have you ever heard a Bible story, read a verse, something you've read many, many times in the past, and all of a sudden, after reading it 150 times, you read it and you go, I never saw that before. God is continuing to teach and to grow us. But here's what happens. When, when the storms of life come, sometimes it's not the storms. Sometimes when life is really super easy, we take the lenses off. Because we feel like we're doing something. But regardless, when we take those biblical worldview lenses off, there's only one other set of lenses to put on. That's the cultural worldview. And the culture sees things much differently than Christians should. See, right now I took these off and I can barely see any of you. You're just blurs. And if I leave these off long enough, here's what happens. I'll think that's normal. We were at the wedding last night. There was a sign over on the wall. It was a very important sign because it listed what the desserts were. I'm sitting next to my wife and Marshall and Patty, and we're sitting there, and, uh, and what are the desserts? Well, it's like, like banana pudding and key lime pie, and I'm getting you all hungry right now, right? But I look over there, and I said, I, I can't see it. So I, put, I have my glasses on. I said, I can't read it. And my wife goes, you can't read that from here? I said, do you mean other people can? Because just, I thought I was just, for me, it was just a little blurry. I couldn't quite make it out. Well, that tells you something. That maybe my eyes have changed again. And maybe my prescription's changed again. I need a little clearer view. But for everybody else at the table, they're like, yeah, I can read it. And all of a sudden it hit me that apparently the perspective I have is not normal. I'm not seeing what I should be seeing. And it hit me that sometimes in the Christian life, that's how it is. We, we are out of the Word so much, we don't know the Word. We're not reading it. We're not studying it. We're not worshiping. We're, our average attendance is once a month. I mean, we're not, in, we're not even connecting with Christians. And all of a sudden, our, our, our biblical worldview, if we had it, it's kind of there. And we start seeing things. And we start uh, liking posts and affirming and agreeing with the world on certain perspectives rather than seeing it from God's perspective. And then we wonder, I don't know that I have joy. I'm just not happy. I think you lost your glasses. There's two groups in the room today. There are people here today that are not Christians. You've never said yes to Jesus, and for some reason God brought you here today for His purpose of drawing you to Himself. It's not accidental. You didn't choose it. You think you did, but you didn't. And God is telling you today it's time. Say yes to Him. There's another group of you here who are Christians, but you're stuck. You've traded your lenses for those that look like everyone else's, and you're tired of it, and you, you, what you need, you're like, well, what do I do? Well, you confess that sin. You get in the Word. You choose the joy in the journey that God has already. Joy is a choice. Remember that. So you have to choose it. You have to choose joy in the journey. Joy for being incomplete, but being made complete in Christ. And ultimately choose that for the sake of the gospel. It really is the J-O-Y. It is for Jesus. It is for others' sake. And it is ultimately for you. Eventually for you. I pray you'll respond accordingly. Let me tell you how we're going to end our service today. We're going to end with a song, a closing song of worship. There are some of you that need to make decisions today. I want to invite you to come. 
We'll have deacons down front. You can come and speak to them. You can come speak to some of our associate pastors. I'm going to tell you where I'm going to be, and I'm going to invite you to come see me if you're a guest especially. I'd like to meet you if you've never been here before. If it's your first time, maybe you've not had a chance to, to meet me or my wife. You'd like to know who we are and know that we're, we're somewhat normal. That'd be nice if you knew that. So we're actually going to step out of this room. We're going to step out and uh, we're going to go out this door. You can go either this door or you can go that door when, when the service is over. And there is a building right behind us with a glassed-in corner. It's our library, and that's where we're going to be. I'd love to tell you to come just meet with me. If you have a decision you need to talk privately, I can meet with you there as well, or one of our other, other counselors can. But we're going to close with this song. I'm going to pray, and Shelvin's going to close us out, and Tracy and I are going to make our way to that room. I'd love to have you come by and see us. Father, we thank you for your, your word. Thank you, Lord, that the joy of the Lord is not just a children's song we learned years ago, but it is actually accessible and available to all of us who know you through Christ. There are some in the room today that are being drawn to you, but are pushing against it for whatever reason. They're embarrassed. They're, they're not quite sure. They're, they, they, thought they, 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 they feel pressured. And Lord, we know the only pressure that anyone may be feeling in this room, it's certainly not from me. It is only from your Holy Spirit and you're doing so for your glory and their good. For Christians in the room that need a fresh outlook, get them a new set of glasses, I pray today, that they may see things the way you see things. Let's not leave decisions left unmade. In Jesus' name I pray.